Like is our weekly-ish podcast where we drink to excess and discuss classic works of literature. Alice is on sabbatical right now, doing her real job in academia. We're going to carry on without her for a couple of episodes, and then, don't worry, she will come back to subject us all to the hashtag nine years of longing um, as much as we can tolerate. Yes, we miss you, Alice. We miss you very much. In today's episode, we are discussing Sense and Sensibility by Jane Austen. Sense and Sensibility was Austen's first published full-length novel, and she published it in 1811. She wrote Northanger Abbey before this, of course, but it was published after she died, as was Persuasion. Jane Austen is a force unto herself, uh, so I don't think we really need to talk about her much, because probably most of you know about her. She is the quintessential Regency-era author, and she writes about young ladies, manners, and politeness, and falling in love. We're huge fans of Austen and obviously Sense and Sensibility. Here we are talking about it. Um, we should add, though, that in today's episode, and pretty much pretty much every episode, to be honest, there will be spoilers. Many spoilers. We consider ourselves professional de-spoilers of literature. And we're too drunk <laughs> to keep quiet about any major plot points. We're de-spoilers of a lot of things. That's a joke. We're not de-spoilers. In, <laughs> in our defense, this book is over 200 years old, so someone probably spoiled it for you already. Yes. Um, I, Chris, will be giving you... Um, the super fast tiny plot summary for Sense and Sensibility. Let's go. In Sense and Sensibility, we encounter the Dashwood sisters, Eleanor and Marianne. There's also Margaret, who's the third sister, but she's 12, and she's mentioned, like, three times in the entire book because no one cares about Margaret. Nope, we don't care about Margaret. Absolutely. Um, at the very beginning of the novel, the Dashwood's father dies, and their half-brother, who is a piece of shit, inherits uh, the whole family estate and the fortune, and the Dashwood sisters and their mother are left with nothing but their mother's fortune. Sad. Eleanor is very practical and sensible, and she's the oldest, and Marianne is full of feelings, aka sensibility, hence the title of the novel. Eleanor falls in love with Edward, uh, and he has a secret engagement that prevents him from being with Eleanor. Marianne falls in love with Willoughby, but he's also a piece of shit and ends up ghosting Marianne and marrying a rich woman instead. In the end, Edward's fiancé runs away with his brother, leaving him free to marry Eleanor. Marianne almost dies, but the long-suffering Colonel Brandon sticks it out, and eventually she marries him. Everyone ends up with husbands and fortunes, and we literally never find out what happens to Margaret. The end! <laughs> because apparently we don't read to find out what happens to Margaret. She's 12, not old enough to socialize or go to class yeah. yet. Has not come out, therefore does not exist in society. We got too many pieces of shit to deal with. Can't deal with Margaret and whatever piece of shit she finds to marry. Yes. Uh, so our cocktail for the day is called the Colonel Brandon. We made it up. It is a comforting blend of warm apple cider and rum with a cinnamon stick and a twist of lemon peel. It's inspired by our beloved Alan Rickman's portrayal of Colonel Brandon in the Sense and Sensibility adaptation. And when he says the air is full of spices, I swear to God that was my sexual awakening. Well, I feel very comforted by the comforting blend of apple cider and rum. I feel comfort on the inside. Okay, well, let's make sure you feel some comfort on the outside. Uh, let's move on to segment two, themes for days. Do you want to do the theme song, or should I? You do the theme song. Okay. Theme song, theme song, theme! Yes! Um, okay, so let's talk about class privilege. Oh, no. There's so much, though. Austin, that's one of Austin's favorite subjects, is class. Yeah, but she only talks about one class, which is the wealthy class. I mean, she also talks about the slightly less wealthy class. Oh, yes. Which is what, what 
the Dashwoods are. Let's be very clear. Despite claims to wretched poverty, the Dashwood sisters, uh, even though they do not inherit um, Norland Park and their father's massive fortune, they are left with, and I quote from my giant compendium of Jane Austen's seven novels, um, on page four, they're talking about Mr. Dashwood, the father, dying. He survived his uncle no longer, and 10,000 pounds, including the late legacies, was all that remained for his widow and daughters. 10,000 pounds was all that remained. And then, I think they're they destitute. The interest in there is two or 300 pounds a year. Plenty of money. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. But apparently they consider themselves poor now, even though they live in a cottage, which is not really a cottage, but in like a McMansion in today's standards. Yes, they call it a pokey hall. And a chimney that's a fire that smokes. And, it, and it only has two it has sitting two, rooms. two drawing rooms, sitting rooms, parlors, whatever you wish to call them. Um, I think one's a drawing room and one's a sitting room. I don't know. No, they're two sitting rooms. Two, oh, excuse me. No drawing room and no parlor. Only I know. Two sitting rooms. So forth. Um, they each do have their own bedroom. Mm-hmm. Um, they also have two servants have but no carriage. Two servants. They don't have enough money for stables and horses and a carriage or an equipage or livery for their their footmen were they to have a carriage uh, that is the next income bracket up they are not there they're the two servant income bracket so they are I think in today's standards upper upper middle class probably yeah you can pay a housekeeper yeah to come once a week and also have your dry cleaning sent out yeah I mean that's they're they're not poor no. Despite everything in this novel trying to convince you, and they that don't have more. any debt. They're unencumbered, as they say in the 18th century. No debt. They don't have a car <laughs> or car insurance. No carriage. Um, they borrow from other people for free when they need those things. Um, they're invited to dinner at Barton Park, the big, the big house on the, the grounds where their cottage is. Like every day, they say, or almost every day, at least three or four times a week. Which means they don't have to buy a lot of food for themselves. No. They don't I have mean, to keep a nice table. Basically, they pay rent and for their clothes and for their servants and maybe a little bit for food. Um, but they don't have anybody over really a lot, which means they don't have to have your regular, I don't know, 12-course meal where you lay out your whole board. They call it laying the table, laying the cloth. Yes. So, um, I mean, we could spend the entire rest of this podcast talking about how they're not poor, but... Uh, in the interest of talking about class privilege in a larger scale, um, so Jane Austen almost never talks about genuinely poor people. I think the poorest people that we see are Lucy Steele, probably. Mm-hmm. Lucy Steele's in a fairly precarious position, yeah. to be honest. Like her she- father, her uncle, is an educator, which is kind of like a middling. You're like not rich, probably don't have any servants. Your wife does it all for you. Yeah. Um, but not of the service class quite, yeah. like a governess. So she has, like, no no financial uh, backing. Like, she has no nothing to fall back on as soon as, like, the male family member who is providing for her dies, and, like, she's basically, like, she could be on the streets. So Lucy Steele's, like, the only genuinely um, precarious person. Even though she lives, like, probably a middle-class lifestyle, it's really, like, one death away from destitution. Um, so that's an important thing to remember, even though we hate Lucy Steele. But then there's, like, the other people who have 
money problems. And, like, the Dashwoods aren't really poor. They feel poor for them. Um, but they at least, like, live within their means and, um, like, aren't in debt. And, and they're, like, doing the best they can. And they're, like, good, poor, wealthy people. Um, but I then mean, we have, as you can tell from episode two, we really love good, poor people. Yes, but we especially <laughs> love good, poor, wealthy people. Yes. Um, but then there's, like, uh, Willoughby and Edward and Robert Ferris and, like, all of the men who haven't inherited their fortunes officially but are always, like, they're going to. They're, like, living on their prospects, essentially. No, Willoughby already has one fortune. He has Co-Magna, so he has one estate that brings in a lot of money, and he can't stop himself from gambling and hunting. That's why he has trouble, because he can't stop himself. And then he is going to inherit Alanum, his aunt's estate. So he's going to have two fucking huge estates, and the only thing he has to worry about is not running himself into more debt. He isn't capable of doing Which, this. apparently, he isn't capable of doing, which is the reason his deal with Marianne doesn't work out, is because he can't keep his hands to himself and not on a gun or at the gambling table. Yes. Um, or apparently off other people. Or apparently off other people. Uh, and then there's Edward and Robert, who are expect like, Edward is supposed to inherit his mother's fortune, but then she, like, disowns him, and then Robert inherits it. But it's like... There's a lot of talk in this novel uh, of people being like, oh, poor wealthy men who have to wait around for these women to die to give them their, their money. Um, and I have, like, zero sympathy for these dudes. Man, they're, they're ridiculous. My favorite is um, John Dashwood. Oh, yes. Right? Because he has an uncle die and a father die. He gets these huge estates with lots of money, and his wife is an absolute bitch of a woman. She is terrible. She talks him out of helping them financially. The Marianne and Eleanor and their mother, Mrs. Dashwood, she talks him out of helping them financially. Margaret, too. Don't forget about Margaret. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> She's 12. She doesn't matter yet. Not until she turns 14 and comes out into society. <laughs> 15 if she has a nice supervisory mother who wants to keep her close to <laughs> From what we've learned about Mrs. Dashwood, it's that she's very nice, but possibly not the most uh, sensible of women. So I'm pretty <laughs> well, sure Margaret's, <laughs> Margaret's coming out at 14. Probably, yes, yes. Oh. <clears throat> so the only Dashwood. person who, the only person who's, like, actually good with money and, like, is rich but not crazy rich, well, he is crazy rich, but, like, in their standards, not crazy rich, uh, is Colonel Brandon. I love Colonel Brandon. I love him so much. I have a soft spot for Colonel Brandon. It's largely influenced by the Alan Rickman portrayal. I mean, Alan Rickman can influence me any day of the week. As much as he wants. Uh, R.I.P. But Colonel Brandon also, like, he genuinely falls in love with a young lady who is a ward of his family. And then when he's he's forbidden from marrying her, he stays... In his youth, by the way. In his youth, in his youth, before marrying. And he, he... runs away to the army, or they send him away to the army, and but he remains faithful, and then he comes back, and it turns out that she has um, been subjected to the cruelties of the world, and has also... She endowed- marries his older brother. Yeah. She yes. marries his older brother because they force her to, and then he is a terrible, abusive husband, and then he... She becomes, like, a loose woman having affairs, and then her husband disowns her because she gets pregnant, 
And that's when Colonel Brandon comes back and is, like, super sad, and he finds her, like, basically living on the street, dying. Um, it's, it's real sad. But then he adopts, sort of, or, like, takes care of her illegitimate daughter and uh, is, like, a super good surrogate father to her. And like, but then she disappears, too! Yeah, she runs she... off with a dude, and wouldn't you know it, who is the dude? It's, it's Willoughby. It's Willoughby! Can I, uh, can I just say that she is 15 at this time? So fuck Willoughby. Ew! Yeah. Ew! Um, she's 15. I feel like we should, like, tell all the men for the last 300 years, keep your hands to yourself and your private parts in your pants. Like, stop yes. putting your penis in young ladies. Just, just don't, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't, don't do it. Don't do it. Um, I will say that, okay, so Colonel Brandon falls in love with Marianne Dashwood, and she's, like, around 16, 17. She's, a, like, a, barely 16 when he meets her, and he falls in love with her, but... He does not pursue her. No. Act like he does not, he does not pursue her at that point. Like, he is clearly in love with her. Everyone's like, you should marry him. He's wealthy. And she's like, I want Willoughby, whatever. When um, she's not into it, he backs off. He, he only comes even, to visit sometimes. But like, he doesn't even, like, initiate. Like, at that point, he comes to visit fairly frequently. And everybody starts rumoring that they're Okay, yeah. But he doesn't, he doesn't like, impose his feelings on No, and he doesn't declare his feelings, which would be the usual first step. You meet a few times, and then he's supposed to declare that he really likes you, and then he's supposed to go to whoever your male guardian is and say to that person that he probably loves you and probably wishes to marry you, and then your actual courtship begins. And Brandon never does that. Um, And as soon as Marianne says that she's into Willoughby, he backs off. He backs off. He only comes to visit a couple of times. He really only sees them at the big house instead of their cottage. Yeah. He is a gentleman. And he a is. He is, like, 20-something years older than Marianne. I mean... But that was not completely uncommon in the 18th no. and 19th centuries. Mm-hmm. And he absolutely respects her autonomy and her privacy um, and her youth. And doesn't, like, they don't get... They don't get together until she's, like, 18, 19, which is still extremely young. I mean, that is pretty young. But she's at least, you know, an adult. Albeit a young adult. I know, but she's had her heart broken. I always feel so bad for Marianne, because she gets, she gets her heart ripped out and stepped on and crushed. Yeah. I feel bad for Marianne. And she loves Shakespearean sonnets. Like, who loves Shakespearean sonnets that much? Not me. I mean, I love them, but not that much. Not that much? No, she carries them around in her pocket, which is like a little tiny purse. And so does Willoughby, and that's how they end up loving each other, is that they love Shakespearean sonnets together, and they love poetry together. Readers, did you hear my eyes roll in the back of my head? Because that's how hard they rolled. Um, Yeah, so I like that Colonel Brandon gets to marry Marianne. It's a little sad that, like, she kind of pity marries him at first and then falls in love with him. But, I mean, you so take you know, what I you can get when you're Colonel Brandon, I guess. <laughs> Do what you can. And for Marianne, who's had her heart ripped out. She has the best husband. It's true. With 2000 a year, clear, as Mrs. Jennings says. Yes. No debts, plenty of cash. And a very nice house. A very nice house. She spent, Mrs. Jennings spent a lot of time describing the trees. 
had Colonel Brandon's, Brandon's estate, which is kind of unusual. But like, why do we need to know about all of those trees? Because she thinks that Marianne will care about the trees. Sure, sure. Which, to be fair, Marianne would little, care about. The trees. She does care about the trees a little bit. It's it's kind of a lot of describing trees, though. Like Austin, I don't know. She tells us that Marianne likes the outdoors, and then also confirms it again. <laughs> this is Jenny Jennings describing all of the trees. Well, God bless Mrs. Jennings. If we had <laughs> like an unlimited amount of time, we would spend a lot of our character analysis on Mrs. Jennings. But she's so. She's so weird, and I love, actually, okay, brief aside to talk about Mrs. Jennings, but, like, she's so weird and kind of annoying and, like, socially awkward and everything, and, like, Marianne kind of loathes her, and she, because she's judging of, like, everyone, and then as the novel progresses and, like, bad shit happens to Marianne and Mrs. Jennings is, like, genuinely nice to her, Marianne, like, really changes how she feels about Mrs. Jennings. And she's a like, talkative lady with no boundaries. No but boundaries. she's actually nice on the inside. She's super kind. She's a good woman. And, like, I love... I feel like Marianne's change of heart towards Mrs. Jennings is, like, the symbol of her increase in maturity. Yeah, she pulls it together to be able to see the merits in other people. Because before, she wouldn't even, like, be in the room with people that she didn't like. She would find a way to go over to the window and not play cards. <laughs> she's such a hero. <laughs> We should all be Mary and Ashley. Walk to the other side of the room and look out the window pensively. That's what I'm going to do at all parties from now on. Walk to the window. Pensively. Um, So, should we talk about who gets to marry who? And who gets judged for it? Can we do it while talking about Edward? Well, we're going to talk about Edward, but I kind of want to talk about Willoughby without doing a whole character analysis of talking about Willoughby. Okay. Okay. So I really do not like Willoughby because he is a what? Willoughby is a fra- rapist and a well, womanizer. Yes, okay, and Willoughby is terrible. Willoughby is terrible. Um, and he like ghosts Marianne, like legit disappeared, like absolutely textbook ghosting. He says, "Peace. I won't see you for at least a few weeks." Goes to London and then like months. Yeah, months go by. Marianne finally goes to London, sends him a note, and says, "I'm in town." Won't you be surprised and happy? Please call on me tomorrow. And what does he do? Does not call on her tomorrow. No, he does, but he specifically waits outside of the house until he knows that they're gone for the day, <laughs> and then drops his calling card off, which is some mess up shit. Okay, so Willoughby is the worst, right? Um, And don't forget he got that young lady pregnant. That young lady who is Colonel Brandon's ward. Um, She's getting people pregnant. At 15. And then abandons her. And then is like, I thought she knew where I lived. She could have gotten in contact with me. Piece of shit. Um, You should have been doing the contacting. You did the contacting before. Yes. That's (laughs) not an appropriate joke, considering what happens to this young fictional woman. It's a little funny. It's It's a a novel. It's a little funny. (laughs) Um, But, like, Willoughby is sort of kind of judged for many things that he deserves, no. Willoughby is judged for many things that he deserves to be judged for, and honestly, like, forgiven for a lot of stuff that he shouldn't be forgiven for, namely, you know, impregnating and abandoning a 15-year-old girl. Um, but there's also, like, a lot of judgment because he's supposed to be this, like, super, have a lot of sensibility and, like, be all up in his feelings, and then he ends up marrying for money, and, like, that's not good. He should marry for love. But then, the women in the novel, Marianne and Eleanor, who are, like, going to marry for love, they get 
judged a little bit too because it's like they need to be practical and like Lucy who's clearly marrying for money and it's like who who is allowed to marry for money no one and yet in reality that's what everybody has to do specifically everybody women or worthless gamblers like Willoughby in order to like continue their lavish lifestyles I guess I don't have that much sympathy for them in the end other than I was about to say I have sympathy for Lucy Steele, but I have sympathy for her circumstances, but she's still no, Lucy the Steele's worst. a bitch. We're going to Lucy Steele. I actually have a tiny bit of sympathy for Willoughby. I realize I'm going to start some fights on the internet about this, but so in we'll the 18th century... fight right here about I know, it. I know. In the 18th century, right, it wasn't as unusual for dudes to have ladies on the side, and it wasn't so unusual for them to be young. And I realize that we personally revolt at the idea of because abandoning a pregnant 15-year-old. Of course it's wrong. But they didn't see the same things as wrong. That is time. not an excuse, though. Because, oh, no. listen, no, it's not. The, like, that's how they were in that time period. It's just, it's like, it doesn't make, we're going to cut this out because we're having a legitimate discussion on that. It's not funny. <laughs> but, like, uh, like, oh, they didn't think it was wrong, so we can't really judge them. It's bullshit because we know it's wrong. Of course we can judge them. And, like, a lot of people do, it's, like, pretty common for men to have women on the side who are younger now, and they're still wrong. Yes. But you can, you can judge them and set, and then set that aside for our own contemporary 2020 hindsight. And then go back and say that I appreciate Willoughby's, like, he did actually intend to marry Marianne, and... And I can appreciate that he was in his feelings, because there are no men, a dude, that can be in touch with their feelings. And if we can judge the shit out of impregnating and abandoning a 15-year-old, but then set that aside as part of the cultural, I don't know, milieu that happens in the late 18th, early 19th century, and But then, it's not, because everybody, because Colonel Brandon, like, everybody thinks that that's horrible. Like, everybody yes. else in the novel is like, what an evil thing to do. We all appreciate that, Cur that Willoughby is... Yeah, shit. I'm saying, I don't know. I, but he's I find, the only I one in touch with his feelings. I like that he's in touch with his feelings a little bit, although that's really, like, I don't have a lot of patience for men who are that in touch with their feelings. Or women. <laughs> I just don't like feelings. No feelings. No feelings. Uh, I do appreciate, though, that um, that Austin really wants to know what happens when, when a dude is in touch with their feelings, and that's and she, and she decides nothing good. Apparently nothing good happens when dudes are that in touch with their feelings because Willoughby turns out as a shit human, and it turns out the best man that Marianne can marry is Colonel Brandon, and so, like, apparently, according to Austin, <laughs> who plays this out in her novel, when men are too in touch with their feelings, it doesn't, it doesn't Actually, work out like, well. Okay, so this is a good point, because, uh, I think that she thinks that if men and women are too in touch with their feelings, it doesn't work out well, because Colonel Brandon is actually has a ton of sensibility. He has like, he has, so, he has so many feelings, and it's so sweet. I know, but I'm but always influenced like, by Alan Rickman's, like, dry smile when he gives that smirk at the end. Or when he leans down to Margaret and says, the air is full of spices. That's the Colonel Brandon that I think of, regardless of how many times I read the novel but itself. It's like, so good. If it, like, I still the, think about But it. in the novel, in the novel, he's also, he has so, like, he's been in love, like, he's been he has holding been in a love candle. at least twice. He's been holding a candle for the yes. woman who died, and he's, like, taking care of her daughter, and he, like, run, he, like, when he abandons the party to, like, immediately go find his, his ward who's disappeared, and, like, then how he talks about Marianne, and, uh, it's, like, he's so in his feelings, but he's also, like, but he has he, the restraint, right? Willoughby is the picture of 
sensibility and feelings without restraint. And then Colonel Brandon's is an appropriate amount of masculine, whatever that means, restraint. Um, just like Marianne is supposed to be both versions herself. She is all of the feelings at first without restraint. She goes on carriage rides with the young man all by herself. Uh, Ooh. And she goes to his house and tours all the rooms without any chaperone. And they haven't even been engaged. I mean, I'm Be sorry. scandalous. Marianne is a little no. bit stupid, but yes. she's also 16, But so. then she's taught a lesson, unfortunately, very violently, and, like, then she shows the restraint that she needs on her feelings. Willoughby never truly learns. He continues to gamble as an outlet for his feelings that he can't express because he marries a of a woman, but, but... Yeah, and then he, like, shows up when Marianne's <laughs> sick, and he, like, shows up in the rain, all dramatic, like, and, um, like, dude, you're married, which is yeah. literally what Eleanor says to him, is, like, you're married, dude, what are you doing here? Um, but then she's like, I feel kind of sorry for him, and I'm like, no, absolutely not, I do not feel sorry for him. Um... Can we talk about characters? Because I have a couple of characters that I really want to talk about. Yes, we can talk about characters now. Okay. All right. Segment three, character analysis, but make it hashtag fashion. Yeah, but come on, do that with a little bit more enthusiasm. Oh, I'm sorry. It wasn't enthusiastic enough for Chris. <laughs> character analysis, but make it hashtag fashion. All right. I'm a sucker for punishment, and I would like to spend today's character analysis focusing on my two least favorite characters, Edward Barris and Lucy Steele. Let's start off with Edward. I strong disagree. I actually think Edward is pretty great. Oh, no! <laughs> I, I, okay, so I used to Not think... the Hugh What's-His-Name version. That version fucking sucks. But, like, the novel version... No, I disagree. I like the Hugh Grant version better than the novel version. Uh, I used to like Edward. All up until this last reading for this podcast, I liked Edward. But then this time, I was doing some close reading of oh, his... Oh, look at you using those academic his, skills. Ugh. I was doing some close reading of his, like portrayal in the book, and I have concluded, my professional opinion is that Edward Ferris is a piece of shit. Um, he's not, though. Okay, so, yes, he is. Let me, let me lay out my argument. Uh, Edward is the brother of Mrs. Fanny Dashwood, and he's the eldest son, and he's supposed to inherit his mother's giant-ass fortune. Yes. He is a grown-ass man with the emotional maturity of a 12-year-old. Um, I and mean, that was four years ago. No, no, he's still emotionally, like, fucked up, and no. Uh, anyway, he's Eleanor's love interest, and I fucking love Eleanor. Eleanor is bae. Eleanor is one of the greatest characters Eleanor ever. is a delight. Eleanor is perfect in practically every way. She's the Eleanor. Mary Poppins of Jane Austen. <laughs> yes. Um, her one flaw is that she likes Edward. <laughs> no! Edward is great! No, he's, he's... Four years ago, he was emotionally immature, but then he learned his restraint. Unfortunately, he learned it by becoming engaged to the worst person ever, who we're going to talk about later. Okay, yes. So, spoiler alert, Edward is secretly engaged to Lucy Steele, who is the niece of his tutor growing up. And they got engaged when he was young, and, like, it's a secret engagement, and he regrets it. Anyway, he falls in love with Eleanor, but he can't marry her because he's secretly engaged, and he's too noble to, like, get rid of the engagement, even though it's stupid. He won't leave her in her precarious situation. I understand that. Because he's actually and I an honorable man. I understand that. Unlike and I Willoughby. I understand that, and I respect that about him, but I still think he is nowhere near deserving 
of Eleanor. Like, when he's like so motherfucking mopey, and I have no patience for that. He is mopey at Norland Park, he is mopey at Barton Cottage. He's, he's less mopey at, at Barton Cottage, he makes jokes. He's very mopey at first, and then yeah. more like, then he like relaxes a bit, which I have feelings about that too. Um, and then he's mopey in London, and he's basically mopey all of the time, and he is stupid. And does things that hurt Eleanor, and I am not okay with oh, that. Oh yeah, no, no, no maybe, one deserves Eleanor, though. But maybe I'm like really, really against Edward because I think he's like, kind, he doesn't treat her right. Like, no. and and then he makes excuses for it, and everyone's like, "Oh, sweet Edward," and it's like, "No, you should have known better." Um, I have quotes, so we brought the receipts. Okay, so. Okay, so this is at the end of the novel, and he's proposed to Eleanor, and she's accepted, and she's like, uh, she tells him, your behavior was certainly very wrong, said she, because to say nothing of my own conviction, our relations were all led away by it to fancy and expect what, as you were then situated, could never be. She's talking about the fact that he was, like, flirting with her, even though he was engaged. And then he says, I was simple enough to think that because my faith was plighted to another, there could be no danger in my being with you, and that the consciousness of my engagement was to keep my heart as safe and sacred as my honor. I felt that I admired you, but I told myself it was only friendship. Until I began to make comparisons between yourself and Lucy, I did not know how far I was got. After that, I suppose I was wrong in remaining so much in Sussex, and the arguments which, with which I reconciled myself to the expediency of it were no better than these. The danger is my own. I am doing no injury to anybody but myself. Okay. Again, he's a grown man, and he's made this decision in his youth, and he regrets it, and then he's being honorable to Lucy, whatever. Fine. But he is, when he's at Norland, when he's with Eleanor and falling in love with her, but also making her fall in love with him, he has no intention at all of proposing to her. And he's not enough of a fuckwit, I think, to think... I mean, he says he is. He says he's enough of a fuckwit to not have noticed that she was in love with him and that everybody thought they were going to get married. Well, then, sir, you are an idiot. Um, and then, if you're not an idiot, then you're a fuckboy because you're sitting there and hanging out with Eleanor and making her fall in love with you even though you know you're not going to marry her because it makes you feel good. And you're like, I'm the only one in danger. No. No, sir, I call you an idiot fuckboy, and that is where I stand on Edward Ferris. He is not all bad, but he is the kind of bad that makes me very angry. Sure. I mean, I'll give you that Edward Ferris is a big idiot. He's, like, he's got no social awareness. He's a huge idiot. I, but at the same time, I guess I still have a soft spot for him, because he comes around in the end. He realizes what he did. He breaks it off with Eleanor and goes to visit Lucy, but then he's, like, really appalled when he sees Lucy and compares her to Eleanor. Like, what the fuck have I done? And then... When does he break it off with Eleanor? He, um, she leaves. He tries to tell her, and then she's called, um, he, they, like, run out of time to talk about it. Mm -hmm. And then he tries to tell her again, right? When they're at the movie? Yes. <laughs> okay, that's in the movie, but it's not in the book. <laughs> Isn't it, though? No, he doesn't okay. try to tell her in the book. Yes, he does. No, he doesn't yeah, try to tell her. At least in Norland, he hints about where he was educated, and then... Oh, um, he hints. Yeah, and then and Mrs. John Dashwood, she's the bitch that she is, comes in the room. Wait, 
So he talks about having been educated in Portsmouth, and that is supposed to indicate that he has yes, a secret he's engagement. He's trying to head there. He's trying to get there, but he disagree. I do not see he cannot conversate. He cannot conversate well, and never made it there. But I feel like he was trying. Okay. I mean, I understand liking Edward. I really do. I don't think that my reading of him is the only valid reading. He's like a failed Mr. Tilney. Yeah. And there, there is my analysis right there. Mr. Tilney from Northanger Abbey is the best of all of the Austin heroes. And Edward is like Mr. Tilney light. He can't get it. He makes all the jokes about the picturesque and the gothic and reading novels, but he can't get it together enough to have an actual snide conversation like Mr. Tilney does with Catherine. Yeah, I, I don't know. I think, I think Eleanor deserves so much better than Edward. I mean, is there but a man that's good there? enough? Yeah, there's not a man that's good enough for her. That's it. I mean, Eleanor is practically perfect in every way. I mean, she really is. God, I love Eleanor. I'd marry Eleanor. Such There's boy. one line where Lucy tells her, gives her all the proof of their engagement, and Eleanor's been trying to hold it together and not believe it, knowing that Edward really does like her. Um, and um, Lucy Steele holds up a, a tissue to her face, a handkerchief to her face, and Eleanor says that she did not feel very compassionate. <laughs> <laughs> Eleanor's the best. So great. Uh, it's, a, it's a handkerchief with Edward's initials. Yes, monogrammed it on it, and it's like for sure a flex on Lucy's part. It doesn't say the initials in the book, though. I don't think. Doesn't it? I don't think so. No, because she produces a letter instead of the uh, handkerchief with okay. the initials. In Sorry. the book, it's a letter. Can you tell me watch this movie a lot? I know. <laughs> we love Alan Rickman. Um, it's a letter and a, um, a portrait. She has a little miniature portrait, and then Edward has a ring with a lock of Lucy Steele's hair, and so all of these things, their powers combined convince Eleanor that Lucy and Edward really are engaged. And just before she produces the letter, Lucy still talks about how they've been engaged for four years and they can't get married and it's just terrible and holds up a handkerchief. And Eleanor says she did not feel very compassionate. <laughs> so good. Speaking of Lucy Steele, Bryn, I know that you have a lot of feelings about her, as do most of us, but I would really love to hear what you've got to say about Miss Lucy Steele. She's so mean. The book tries to play her off as an idiot. Austin tries to write about how she's an idiot, but then at the same time, Austin throws in all these things about how Lucy Steele is an absolute bitch. Lucy okay. knows. Hold on. What? Austin is totally doing that consciously. She's not just an idiot. The portrayals no, of I know she's the also portrayals of her like bitchiness are not yes. incidental. Right. You start off thinking that Lucy Steele is just an, an idiot, but then they do the dinner party and Mrs. Jennings hints at Mr. Ferris for Eleanor, and then Lucy hears that Mr. Ferris is on the table, who she's secretly engaged to, and then when they have it at the first opportunity she can get, she starts throwing in Eleanor's face all the evidence of their engagement, which she did not know about. Eleanor was perfectly fine to continue wishing and hoping that Edward would come around, and instead Lucy decides to take it upon herself to inform Eleanor to sit her down and show her a letter and a portrait and talk about the ring and talk about how he just came from Exeter, didn't he? Yes. You remember that bit? And poor Eleanor has to sit there and fucking take it from Lucy Steele, and, like, she knows exactly what she's doing. Absolutely. She knows exactly what she's doing, even though she's also an idiot and insults Eleanor along the way. She makes all Oh, no, she insults Eleanor... On purpose. I, gosh. She absolutely so, does it on purpose. But then the book also calls her illiterate. So uh, yes. Austin gets back at her, so don't worry. Um, <laughs> yes. Lucy Steele is, she's just, she's vicious and vindictive, 
and I don't really think she's stupid. I just think she's uneducated and illiterate. Um, I think she's very street well, I smart. I guess that's my <laughs> that's my interpretation of stupid at this point. Is that she's yeah, that's fair. Uneducated. Oh, Even spilled, though her uncle I spilled Colonel Brandon all over myself. <laughs> <laughs> I dislike her so much. I mean, I do too. She's awful. Um, to be a little bit fair to her, just a little bit, if your man was flirting with another woman and you saw her, would you be like, hmm, let me do everything I can to mark my territory? In public? In front of everybody else? Okay, that part's shit. I mean, she does take her on a walk the first time, and that's the first yeah. time they tell her. It's not like in the movie where they're at a dinner party and they walk around the room. They go, they're, like, on a walk in the garden, yeah. and then they make it all the way back to the house. But then Eleanor renews the conversation to figure out what she's doing. And Eleanor genuinely tries to do the right thing. Lucy keeps setting all these traps for her, like, what do you think I should do? Do you think I should break off the engagement? And Eleanor's like, I don't fucking know. Do whatever you want, bitch. But nicely. <laughs> yes. But nicely. And because Eleanor's a much better human than I am, at least. Or anyone, um, really. And Eleanor's perfect, and but so she she like Eleanor wants the proofs, and in getting the proofs, knows that Lucy and Edward are engaged, and so she backs the hell off and tries to help everyone else do the same with regard to her, and tells them there is no engagement, and I don't know what you're talking about when you say that Edward loves me. Yeah. No clue. Sorry. Anyway, I don't know. What I was gonna really say is, it is so fucking inappropriate for her to confide in Eleanor like that. It like breaks all of the. Ba- of polite society, well, it makes me extremely angry as, like, a stickler for manners, manners and decorum, <laughs> and and I'm just like, what the fuck, bitch? Like, no! You do not confide your secret engagement to someone you've literally met once. I know you're doing it on purpose, but still. Plus, um, after she told Eleanor of her engagement, like, why does she need to keep going? Why does she need to produce oh, the letter? Why does she need to do the convincing? Exactly. She's just, she's digging, just the knife in. digging the knife in more, which makes her even more of a bitch. Like, you told her you were engaged. You hinted at it. Eleanor asked for more proof. Sidelongly, she, like, hints at it. Lucy gives her more proof. You don't have to keep talking about it. Like, you don't have to keep bemoaning the fact that you've engaged and you can't get married. You don't have to keep asking about your potential future and mother-in-law because, bitch, she's not going to be your mother-in-law with Edward. She's she is going to be your mother-in-law because what happens is that Lucy Steele uh, meets Robert Ferris, who is Edward's younger brother, and then convinces him to fall in love with her and after he's bit inherited the mother's fortune because the mother disinherits um, Edward. Edward. And the, so Lucy marries the younger brother with all the money, leaving Edward free to marry Eleanor. But then it's hilarious because... Uh, Mrs. Ferris, like, disowns Edward and tries to disown Robert, but then Lucy, like, weasels her way into her heart, and then Mrs. Ferris ends up loving Lucy Steele. And Edward's just left out in the cold. Good news is, though, he gets a vicarage, and so he's still in the gentleman class. Yes. And that means he can marry Eleanor, who doesn't really have any dowry or inheritance much. Just, just 500 pounds. Just, yeah, just a little bit. And, uh, which is still substantial, by the way. Um... And, yeah, they end up getting the vicarage on Colonel Brandon's estate. So yes. Eleanor and Marion are neighbors, and their husbands are best friends, and everybody lives happily ever after. Except Margaret. We have no idea what happens <laughs> No idea what happens to Margaret. <laughs> Poor Margaret. Um, it's time for final grades. Time for final grades. Let's do it. Bryn, what, what grade do you give Sense and Sensibility by Jane Austen, and why? I, I always love a good Austen novel. 
I like her later published things more than, but sensitivity moves quickly. It's got some moral lessons in it. She manages to talk about class, and she manages to talk about like ladies doing lady stuff. Um, I'm into it. I would give it an A. Great. I also give Sense and Sensibility an A. It is a solid read, dear readers. Um, Austin does an amazing job making you care about all of these characters, even though all their problems are the most textbook first world problems of life. But you get really emotionally invested every single time I read this book. I'm like, I care so much about Eleanor and Marianne and Colonel Brandon and fuck everybody else. Um, so yeah. And no, a don't fuck everybody else. That's part of the point. Stop putting your penis in young ladies. Yes. Uh, so yeah, we are giving Friends of Invincibility an A. And there's that. So many thanks to all of you for listening and drinking with us today. I'm out. I need a refresher. Let's drink more. Yes. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at PhDrunkPodcast. And you can also go over to our Patreon page at www.patreon slash PH Drunk Podcast, and you can buy us a drink so we can keep drowning our hashtag existential despair. Uh, and thanks as always to Anchor for helping us make this podcast a thing, even though we are technologically challenged. Join us next week to chat about Belinda by Mariah Edgeworth. That's it for us, gentles. Books down, bottoms up. Cheers.